Welcome to the 14th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about planning for failure. Failure in IT is a fairly interesting and complicated setup, and it's also going to happen. It will happen to you. It will happen to everybody you know. It'll happen to every company you work for. And if you've done your job right, it won't be the end of the world. Remember, you learn a whole hell of a lot more from failure than you do from success. So in the face of failure, lots of things can and will fail on you. You need to find ways to mitigate the failure so when something does drop off the earth, you have a suitable replacement running already that will take up load immediately and you don't have customers or other end users or internal people who are out of out of service due to a hard drive or power supply or a data corruption bug or an earthquake or whatever else has happened. So one of the easiest ways to do this is with redundancy. Hard drives are really my favorite example. And I've, I've harped upon hard drives and redundancy for, I don't know how many years, decades. Uh, that piece of spinning rust, SSCs included, it will fail. Not if, it will fail. And so many people in my past have, have neglected the plan for it. And then, oh, crap, what do you do? The server's down because the hard drive failed. And I can guarantee you that that piece of equipment will probably be the first thing to fail in a, in a piece of in a server. So I've always planned for that failure, even on the, the machine I use sitting at home on my desk for my home use has multiple hard drives in it because I know they will fail and they're set up in a redundant way. I'm using ButterFS now, which is kind of freaky and scary. And apart from hard drives, everything fails. Internet connections fail. Latency guarantees between data centers fail. Software configurations fail. All kinds of things will come apart on you. Yeah, it was that moment in time when I realized that I planned for hard drive failure but really, any component of the system uh, can fail just as easily. Power supplies, fans. Data centers. <laughs> Data centers, they've never failed. <laughs> What's that big switch on the wall do again? Ten-year-old Sun Nutra T1s. No, they never fail. The trouble with I've seen a Nutra T1 fall out of a rack, hit the floor, and keep on running. I have seen Run toss its hard drive years ago, and no one noticed that its hard drive was dead because it had its OS in memory. So one of the problems with redundancy is that it has costs. And some of these costs are monetary, and some of them are technical. You know, having a, a mirror of hard drives, that's a, a fairly obvious, you know, doubling the cost of the drive, and you now have one-to-one -one failure. So if one fails, you still have one left, and everybody's still happy. But what happens when the server fails? You're assuming RAID 1 there. Yes. I'm assuming RAID of some reasonable form and not RAID 0 or RAID not. So as you're planning your, your redundancy stuff, the questions you need to ask yourself are, do you need an immediate failover? Because if you need immediate failover, your cost and complexity has just gone up. If you can be, if the system can be offline for six hours, say it's a little used FTP mirror. Well, if it dies, you can... You can spend your time bringing up a new one and not keeping a hot spare running because there's no point keeping a second running if it's a non-critical system. 
my personal website. Completely non-critical. If it goes down, no one dies. If it goes down, I do not lose any profit. It can be down for a couple hours. And and I think this is where configuration management comes into play, too, to help reduce the time it takes for you to configure a server. Because if you're sitting there installing a, a, a machine by hand and then manually configuring it and then going, oh, what was the configuration? You know, it, but if you have an automated process, that that reti- that time from recovering from a failure to a fully baked machine could be down to 10 to 20 minutes, and it's back up and running. And that brings up an interesting point about what is what is your objective? Is it to be back up and running in 10 minutes? Is it to be back up and running in two hours? Or is it you don't you can't afford to miss a transaction in a database because you are handling stock events or other online transaction processing and you have to be up all the time? And the smaller You're your investment bank. Yeah, the smaller your time window is, the costlier and the more complicated it gets. That's what a lot of people I've worked with have real difficulty understanding. They think that uh, being redundancy is is being investment bank grade uh, redundant to any sort of failure, and that there's there's no space between that that level of redundancy and having no redundancy, and it's it's very much a very broad spectrum that that folks really need to analyze carefully to to choose the point on the spectrum that matches their costs and their risks. So active active or active passive? Ah oh, man. I I personally like even though it's the more difficult of the two, I actually like active active but only because in active passive it's gonna be the, the tendency is gonna be just like with backups and other things when you have a cold spare, is that yeah, you'll you'll get around to testing it and you never will. And then whenever you flip over to it or whatever the mechanism is to start using it, then everything will fail there too. So that's the only reason I like active active because it forces you to solve the problems because both have to be working. Obviously active passive is much easier to solve and cheaper. But again, I I think the tendency there is to just not to be lazy or to say you don't have enough time and just to never even test it or even do routine failovers to the secondary and make it the primary Um, because people get into this uh, false sense of security and, and, are scared to, you know, what if something fails and I, oh, we can't do that. And so then you never test it and the day comes and your backup fails as well. And now you're dead in the water. What if something fails when you're practicing your failure? Well, that's why you start, when you develop a system, the first thing you do is you start testing failure modes. Say, okay, what happens when the master controller goes down? What happens when there's a network partition? What happens when list of things happen? So you can, you can kind of keep Everybody's comfortable with what the recovery process is and what the failure mode is and how the system will alert you and react in in those pieces. And in some cases, it's enough to do a warm warm failover. Um, We have a very large elk cluster at current job. And our disaster recovery cluster is five nodes instead of 280. But it's taking 1% of the log traffic and it keeps it for one day and not the crazy amount that we keep in the production cluster. And there's only a single master, but we can we use it to validate that our configurations are staying in sync, that changes are actually propagating correctly through the system. And in the event of a failure, we have a live system that has everybody's current dashboards on it. It's up and running, and they can start using it immediately, albeit with almost no data. It's just, it's the, okay, we're, we had a disaster, we're starting from zero, 
let's see what we have. So it's a, a very inexpensive way relatively to keep a warm spare online. And see, I'd almost say that's kind of a hybrid. And and, and I like that because, again, you're you are forcing yourself to use your backup and it's no longer just sitting there idle and neglected. And I, and I think that's honestly the scariest piece for both redundant systems as well as backups. Because if you don't test your backups, you don't have a backup. Well, also bear in mind the old adage about replication is not backups and RAID is not a backup. Um, it's replication. So if you corrupt data on one side of a replica, the data will be corrupted on the other side of the replica. It will faithfully rep- replicate your corruption or your deletion or whatever it is you did. So you need to make sure that you have actual backups as well as your hot spare or your your failover site or whatever else you're using. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good idea if you if you do have a passive site to use your backups to seed it to routinely you know let that be your area to test your backups from uh, just to make sure that they are functioning and that's the most likely place that you'll be restoring a backup at anyway so that's a good place to be familiar with the limitations of the hardware or the configuration of things or what hosts have what names how expensive is it to pull your backups from aws And when you're talking about backups, there's two important things to to remember, and they're very different. There's the RTO, the recovery time objective, which is how long it takes you to finish restoring a backup. So if you need to load a 10 terabyte database, that's going to take a non-zero amount of time. And the other is the recovery point objective, or how old are the backups you're restoring. So if you take a full backup once a week, and it's you're six days out, you may be restoring a backup that's six days old. Is that okay? And much like the redundancy stuff for um, ActiveActive or for for replication, the smaller your RTO and the smaller your RPO are, the more expensive it gets. And since we are talking about backups here, I just, I think the 321 backup rule, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, but just to mention it here, it's three copies of the data, hopefully at least on two different media types. Although now in this day and age, uh, it's kind of difficult to. You know, I don't know if people still use tapes anymore and they even do. back up the CDs. Well, well, they do, but I guess especially if you're in a cloud environment, uh, it's a little more difficult. Uh, and then at least one copy off-site, hence 3.2.1. And if you're running your environment in EC2, S3 is not off-site. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, the whole concept of a, of the cloud nowadays really really makes talking about backups probably worth their own complete episode um, and discussing the the redundancy of, of object storage systems like uh, OpenStack Swift and Amazon's S3. Um, and yeah, I, I occasionally I surf through the internet and, and think, you know, wouldn't it be great if I, you know, did my own backups here at the house and did them right. And there really isn't suitable quote unquote media um, to do backups well. In any case, it's if you want to do backups well, there it's it's cloud based uh, solutions, multiple cloud based solutions, really. So I'll I find... take uh, multiple regions in in Amazon, but uh, the cloud has really changed the game with with how people uh, understand safe backups. So the. The problem with using S3 as a backup for EC2 
is generally people have the same credentials configured for both. And there have been a number of very, very sad stories about a startup that was using EC2 and had their backups in S3, and somebody published their, their API keys online, and a miscreant came in with the API key and said, oh, I'm deleting everything. And well, they deleted your, your S3 buckets, and they deleted the EC2 images, and suddenly the company has no assets anymore, and they're out of business. Congratulations. You're no longer in business. So just keep that in mind. And I, I find that for home use, consumer 4 terabyte USB 3 hard drives are not that expensive, you know, 100 bucks when they're on sale. And you can put a lot of crap on a 4 terabyte drive. Yes, you can. So buy one every six months, stick it in the safe deposit box or wherever else, and you don't get everything back, but, you know, the 10 years of pictures of your kids or whatever, you haven't lost it. And this is, of well, course... Make sure you make sure you use a file system that supports uh, checksumming so that you don't have bit rot. True. Also, cloud backups for home users is very, very inexpensive at this point, and everybody should be using it. So Cloudflare, Black backblaze whatever it is you like um use it love it fresh plan yeah the the these systems are cheap um i pay 15 bucks a month and i can back up up to 10 computers or so and i can back up computers to other computers and then back them up to my provider um so it's it's worth every penny and yes i have used the restore option so moving along from machine failure, there are other kinds of failures that are equally insidious as machine failure, if not worse, and harder to plan for and think about and recover from. And this is generally involved with the issues that networks are not perfect, and networks have latency and lag, and networks get interesting partitioning when links between things fail. So suddenly your 10-node cluster, it's split in half, and each side decides to elect a new master, and when the network heals, you have major problems. Um, there's a whole th- there's a whole theory uh, in computer science called consistency availability in partitioning, or the CAP theorems, that talk about Brewer's in- theory. Who's Brewer's theory? If you actually want to credit the the guy that came up with it, absolutely. What was his name? Eric Brewer. Um, the CAP theorem that Eric Brewer came up with in the really early 2000s and recently updated in in 2012, so that's actually fairly recent, um, is just a fantastic way for me to to think about in a practical matter um, how to design systems, what the limitations of them are, and how to plan for failure. Uh, The CAP theorem is about three different uh, bits of, of... failure planning. There's consistency, uh, so equivalent to having a single up-to-date copy of your data. Um, The data you put in is the data you get out. There's availability, the fact that every single query you ask for the data um, gets a response, whether it's a negative or positive response, it gets a response from the application. And there's tolerance for uh, network partitions, Uh, C, A, and P. Usually you can have two of these, but not all three. Um, it's not quite a um, two are on and one are off. Uh, it's it's very much a continuum, uh, especially as you get into the details of, of how a given uh, applications or set of applications are 
are configured as they may make different decisions at different parts inside the application. Um, <clears throat> but let's see, what can we take apart with CAP to give a demonstration? Probably Amazon S3 is one of my favorite things. And let's see, how does it work? I should have planned this offhand. Um, is it always consistent? Every time I've gotten data out of it, it's always been the right copy of data. Um, so I'll give it consistency. Is it uh, always available? No. I've always had it available. No? Yes? Maybe? They've had, they've had outages. They have had, they have had system outages of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, uh, tolerance and network partitions? Um, S3 is, is a eventually consistent uh, replication technology. So how does it deal with network partitions? It starts to sacrifice um, consistency. So really, uh, Amazon S3 is probably most likely an AP-ish system where it focuses on on availability of the overall system and being able to withstand network partitions and what to do with the data in the background. But the data is on an eventual consistency model. So it is possible to to put data in, request data back out, and get an older copy of it. Does everybody agree with that? Sure. I haven't studied the S3 model in that kind of lens. That was off the cuff, and I really look forward to our listeners um, writing in and telling me that I was wrong. But doing a sort of analysis like that with a a system that I've built in-house or that the team has built in-house to figure out exactly where the the failure modes are and do those failure modes line up with with the business goals of the company? There's a a software developer um, named Kyle Kingsbury who has done a series of very popular blog posts, the Jepson tests, um, where he covers what happens in network partitions. And he's gotten through Zookeeper and Kafka and all kinds of things. And he talks about exactly how the systems fail, how to make them fail, and bugs he's submitted to the project owners about, you know, when when, it, when I do this, it doesn't, it doesn't do the right thing over here. He's kind of ruthless about it, but he's demonstrating that a lot of people who claim to have a CA or an AP system don't actually. And I can get your, I can get your system by segmenting the network or splitting things off to behave in ways that you say are impossible. So it's, it's I worth love a read. folks that say they're cap compliant and they're a, a, a CAP, whatever. And I love looking at their uh, software and being able to dig out. No, they're really probably only a, it's never uh, judge the book by its cover, I guess. What's interesting is he's uh, turned that into a full-time job now. You can uh, you can hire him to test your your software, and he tries to publish it. Uh, I believe that if you do, he will hide the pub- the the results if you don't want him to. But he tries to uh, continue to post those results to the uh, the Jepson blog. Well, a lot of folks would want him to publish the results. It's not like it's a big secret. It's okay. How does the system fail? We've had. Kyle Kingsbury look at it. He's given us a relatively high mark. So yeah, that, that's something to, to brag about. And he's also the guy who wrote Reinman, right? Reinman, whatever. He is. Very, uh, very smart dude. Is that a consulting outfit as well? Or is that just a project of his? 
that's just a project of his. And and to be honest with, I mean, I it's it's almost I'm not going to say it's abandonware. I I don't think it's his primary focus anymore. It's it's almost more like it's feature complete. Um, I definitely see other developers um committing to it and carrying it on. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, one of his projects. Okay. But yeah, there's no reason why my you the sysadmin. The operations guy can't do some of that testing of your own uh, infrastructure in-house. Well, and technically, Jepson, the, the, the tests he runs are open source as well. So you could, uh, I think they're just closure apps. So you can you can do it yourself. Fantastic um, examples. To, yeah, to, to be able to, to test your stuff. One of the things about failure that really, that really grinds my gears is most people have... Do not wish to to rehearse their failure plans. Uh, most people don't want to take the chance that there might be an outage uh, when rehearsing their their failure scenarios. And well, practice makes perfect. If you're if you really want to make sure that things are are redundant and fail over easily, and and that folks can follow the procedure at two a.m. in the morning. Um, there's only one way to make sure that's possible, and that's to practice it. A lot of folks that I've worked with spend so much time getting these complex systems up and running. Just to get them running is such an, an extraordinary task to them that they can't bear the idea of, so what happens when we ungracefully shut down a node? They think, oh, well, all, all this work I have to do to put it back together. And it's like, well, but when it fails it, for real, you have to do all that work then. So do it now before people are relying on the service to be up. Yeah, and I think it's really important to do that, you know, that for that to become part of the culture because then if you if you plan for it or if you plan to test it during the day, you'll have everybody there hands-on ready to respond in, if something happens. But if you wait and it does happen, let's say at 2 in the morning, then you got to try to wake people up and there's then your time to respond to that is much longer than if you say, "Hey, today at whatever time, we're going to pull the plug on this and see what happens. And and I think that's really important. Which is one of the reasons that we don't make changes on Friday afternoons because we don't want to work all weekend. But yeah, you, when you want to test a failure at 9 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, you know, it's, it's not Monday, you're not dealing with the weekend's fires. Everybody's had a chance to get a cup of coffee or whatever their morning thing is. And okay, now we're going to fail this thing. Okay, great, it worked. Or oh, crap, it didn't work. Let's put it back together now, guys. When we were building the most recent Elk cluster, we spent three or four weeks just failing things to make sure we understood the way things failed and how to tune the system so it would recover properly. And we felt like we rushed it. And that was just in, okay, so what happens when we dump this out? What happens when we do horrible things to the networking on, on Elasticsearch node to make sure that when it reconnects, all of its copies of the data are now marked as old and all the other things that happen and... So we know what it looks like. And and I think when presenting that that testing idea to higher ups, especially more on the business side than the technical side, I think it needs to be explained that these failures will happen regardless. So it'd be better to have them in a controlled state so that you can respond to them more effectively than for it to be in in its normal time at you know, the worst hour and then it takes double the time to recover. Mm-hmm. So famously, Netflix has written a piece of Java code, or not a piece, but it's a large framework called the Chaos Monkey that 
goes through their system, especially the Amazon stuff, and just fails pieces of it. And it logs that it's done that, so you can go find out when the failure was caused by the Chaos Monkey or when it was caused by an actual failure. But it makes sure that everybody is used to failure just being a thing that happens all the time. So everybody's used to it, and nobody ever expects that I'll have a system that's up for a year. Because it won't be up for a year. It'll get failed at some point, or replaced, or however. So it's a very useful mindset to be in that things are going to fail, deal with it, plan for it, alert for it, and move on. Stripe does a similar thing where they have what they call game day exercises. And last year at Monitorama, they actually gave a little presentation about it. And they they did that where they they had their – everybody was ready. They uh, pulled the plug on uh, Redis, I believe it was. And it actually had a failure. They they had an issue. But luckily, everybody was there. And and they did this during the day. And, you know, Stripe is a credit card processor. I mean, they they would – you know, they actually, I think, turned away some transactions or had some issues because of this test. But everybody was around so they could react to it more quickly. And better yet, they figured out what it was and fixed it so that next time if they had a failure, they wouldn't have the same issue. And I very much think that this this mindset and culture also leads to producing better software. As I, I definitely come out of the the era where you wanted your Linux machine to have a high uptime and things that didn't go down meant things that were running for years. And that's applications that are running for years are applications that have unpatched security vulnerabilities in them. When you've built your systems to tolerate failure means you can uh, do rolling restarts and rolling upgrades seamlessly behind without anyone noticing. And that keeps your OS, your application stack from top to bottom, um, up to date, and enables uh, good uh, continuous integration practices, and really is is what the cloud is sort of is sort of based on, and why that's been uh, so successful is simply planning for, rehearsing for failures, and knowing what to do when you have a failure. And then realizing that we don't have to have a single application that's up 24-7. We can take it down and swap it out anytime we want to. And that's been a, an incredibly empowering, uh, a fundamental shift in, in how we do our jobs. I think it's part of our nature as what we do that we like complicated things. But when things get too complicated, they get to be very, very fragile. Um, I used to do a bunch of work with Sun Cluster. And it was extraordinarily robust when it failed in the ways that were expected. But there were all kinds of software issues with it, and it, all of these horrible things were happening. And all we were doing is running an LDAP service and a mail service. Having those replicated and having just extra copies that aren't managed by a cluster and all this, they're simpler, they're better. And because they're simpler, they have better uptime. And they don't have as many faults because... It isn't the, there's this lumbering, crazy monolith of Sun Cluster that's trying to do all of the things for you. It's, no, you have you have 15 LDAP servers, and you put a load balancer in front of them, and you're done. And you don't, and you, you, push, you push updates to them, and you don't worry about locking and figuring out masters and quorum nodes and shared shared storage to be tiebreaker, tiebreaker votes for stuff and all kinds of 
wacky things that used to be the way it was done. So that wraps it up for episode 14 of the Practical Operations Podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks. Good night.